I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. Mm -hmm. I got designer t-shirts. Got gold bullets, mm -hmm. motherfucking vampires. Mm -hmm. I got Scarface mm -hmm. on repeat. Scarface on repeat. Constant, y'all. I don't know what's going on here. I was just at work for real. Like man, I'm, I'm man, just trying to do my man. job, and I don't know. You could get a rich man if you tried. I don't want a rich man. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Hi, welcome to Projections Podcast Series 4. This season, we're looking at work and money on screen, critiquing modern economics through a psychoanalytic lens. We'll discuss excess, pursuit, competition, livelihood, austerity, property, and post-digital work, culminating in liberation, to touch on the various trials, tribulations, and traumas of accessing the means of survival. First, we pitch them Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusive. Companies these people know. Once we suckered them in, we unload the dog shit, the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. It's your choice to be a skivvy, isn't it? A skivvy doesn't come to you, you go to it. Come on, let's go to Paris's. I want to rob. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay as well, thank you. It's been quite a few <laughs> weeks in the world. I know. Yeah, it's been so eventful. Um, but how are you keeping anyway? Um, I'm keeping well. Um, everything's just exactly the same as it has been for like the last hundred weeks or however long it's all, all been. Um, so yeah, I'm absolutely fine. I know. I know what you mean. Like I've lost track of how many weeks now we've been in lockdown. I feel like yeah, it's, it's so, it's, I feel like I'm in a dream. It's yeah. so weird. Well, yeah. just like in a new life and like my old life was a dream. Ah. Mm. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, episode three in our new series uh, where we talk about money, work uh, and psychoanalysis in film. Um, and this week the topic is competition. So we selected two films, Glengarry Glen Ross and Crime d'Amour, Love Crime. Oh, so and, uh, beautifully pronounced. Uh, you know what, actually, I j just realized that Crime d'Amour was the last film directed by Alain Corneau. Did you ever see many of his films? Like I've always heard of him, but I, I, don't, I think this is really the only film I've seen by him. Mm. But apparently... Yeah, apparently he was like quite a big filmmaker in France. Okay, no, I don't think I've seen any, but I might have just accidentally seen some and not realized it was him. Oh, yeah, yeah, probably same. Uh, apparently he was the first to work with Yves Montand many oh. years ago. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so how, what order, like what should we do? What, how, how shall we carry on this episode today? I'm really not sure. Like I'm finding it hard to put these films into order. Me too. I was struggling. Like I, in a weird way, like I felt like the topic 
was something I had in mind to talk about. And then when I sat down to watch the two films side by side, it put me in a strange ontological space. Like Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I had a very ambivalent perception of competition, very different to the one I had held in my mind before. Yes, same. Um, interesting, like, but yeah, our theme we had intended is competition, but then our theme we have intended often, like, is not the theme we end up talking about. That is so um, true, yeah. But, Mary, are you competitive? Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, but I am. Mm-hmm. What, what about you? I'm not sure. I think that I'm possessive and jealous and that can extend to my professional relationships um and but I'm I think competitive not so much I think that I tend to kind of run away at the sight of anyone else competing like I'm just like oh oh, you can have it you can have it I'll step back um but that doesn't mean I don't get like very very upset if I see someone um being better than me (laughs) or something so yeah I suppose I am competitive but it kind of comes it's like my experience of competitive is not the same as like the you know sort of cultural perception of competitive it's like much feels like a much more emotional thing it's a very Scorpio trait as well all of this (laughs) it's like it's very ingrained in the Scorpio um I guess characteristics to be a little bit like yeah, kind of ter- a little bit territorial, territorial with things, a little bit possessive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I watch, especially watching Love Crime. Like I felt that was a very Scorpio movie, like with the revenge element as well. <laughs> That's true, actually. Maybe we should finish with Love Crime because we like, you know, it's, it, we have such an emotional connection to it. That's um, a good idea. With that, like the professional made personal. Um, and we should start with Glengarry Glen Ross, which was my first time watching it, by the way. I know oh, it's like really? a classic, but I've never seen it before. It's a classic. And what a cast. Oh, my God. Yeah. What an incredible cast. So we've got Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris. Ed Harris is my ultimate favorite. Like, yeah, I've got a crush he, on Ed Harris. Oh, me too. He's amazing. And it's I, actually, I didn't realize that the screenplay was by uh, David Mamet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's directed by James Foley. So what did you think of it? I have to say, I think I'm looking forward to hearing your um, like analysis of it because uh-huh. I have to say I wasn't very gripped on an emotional level um, by it. I thought it was like very beautifully done, and I love all of those actors. Um, I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't. I definitely it didn't have like a, a sort of um, it didn't have like a ton of trashy hook, which I usually need in a movie, <laughs> <laughs> which Cream Demo definitely did. Oh yeah. Um, yeah I think uh yeah it was um I don't know it's so long since I watched a film that was just like exclusively about a bunch of men yes and it's like it's about a bunch of white guys as well just like a bunch Mm -hmm. of like you know very similar men so I think it um it was a bit of a shock in a way because you couldn't cast a film like that these days like not for a long time (laughs) no way um um, but shall I um shall I kick off by synopsizing yeah yeah, sure. So, um, Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, 1992, adapted from a play by David Mamet. <laughs> Glengarry Glen Ross follows a group of real estate salesmen who are threatened with dismissal if they are not one of the top two salesmen in the company by the end of the week. 
They rely on leads, information on potential customers given to them by their office manager, but unless they are closing sales, the leads they are given are useless, obstructing their ability to improve. All terrified they will lose their jobs, they split up for the evening and plot their strategies. The next morning, the office has been broken into and the good leads are stolen. First of all, I have to say, just right out the, the gate, my absolute favorite scene is when Alec Baldwin, the salesman from downtown, as he's referred to, he's he appears at their office and he chastises all of them for their lack of sales and mm-hmm. actually questions their manhood. Like it gets really personal and it's like this profanity-laden tirade and he's... It's just, I don't know. There's something about that that's quite spellbinding to me. Um, mm-hmm. And he's only, you think you, he's like this huge presence in the film, but he's only in it for one scene for yeah. a couple of minutes and that's it. But he's the most that, memorable thing in that film. Yeah, it's <laughs> so true. Yeah, you're right. Like he sort of disappears, but he becomes like this, almost like a mythical presence in the film. Like he only needs to appear once and he, ma- he, he makes his mark and he threatens them sufficiently that they just always remember him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the whole film, to me, like it ends up representing something about like the culture of modern work um, that is so permeated with the ambition of managers to impose or create a sense of like intrinsic motivation in workers to try and get them to deliver the goods. And it's just all run in this like situation, like this context of how these people work. Like I remember watching it the first time ever and thinking, is it even realistic for these salespeople to be working at this hour of the night in yeah, the middle of a rainstorm. Thinking. It's like it's like a to- it's like it's like the mo- it's such a kind of Kafka esque film because like they're given like an impossible exactly. job to do. They're given like broke customers who can't buy any land, and yeah, and they're like you know depositing checks at the bank at like what seems like midnight, and like they have to keep working even though their office is closed. So they have to work from a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. And, yeah, it's like kind of like the circle of hell that they're in, like as opposed to a real life. It's really strange. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a real good way of putting it. Like this kind of, it's it's a hellscape. Like it really is a hellscape of like everything is working against them. Like the time of day, the weather, these like dud leads that like don't amount to anything. Um, and just the whole pitch also is just like who would who honestly would buy that like mm-hmm. it's it's just so bizarre and it's it's such a sisyphean task of just constantly pushing this um boulder up a hill and then it just ends up rolling down and crushing you and you have to keep doing it every day and you're meant to be it's also the fact that like the Alan Baldwin character tells them they're all fired so it's it's not even they don't even have the security of their job they're fired and if they manage to like enter into the top two position sales, if they're ranked in the top two they 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 can they can enjoy kind of reclaiming their job mm. so there are everyone is working under the assumption that they've been sacked and so it's this fear instilled in them that they're not just they're not just like hired to do a job and like performing their tasks for a salary 
it's it's it is so cutthroat but everything is working against them and it just seems so unrealistic that they would have any success whatsoever and it just for me that whole scene and you know the the whole abc thing always be closing like that crazy obsession with the bottom line you know of 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 constantly selling and this idea that we live in this kind of like we have to, we're told to work in such a way that we have to expect infinite growth but we live on a finite you know we live on a planet with finite resources like mm-hmm. infinite growth is impossible like it's just not we're, we can't do that have you ever worked in a job where you were competing with other employees in that way no i can't say that i was personally like i never and I never worked in sales or like managed accounts in that kind of competitive way. I can't say I've done that. Have you? Yes, I worked in it's not it wasn't like outwardly it wasn't, you know, you weren't told that you were competing, but there was like a table, you know, like you you had like a place in how much you sold. You sold. So you were sort of competing, but it was more that you were kind of competing with um it was a like a luxury lingerie company, but it was the like it was the it was the concession in a department store, um, and we all had like sales targets every month, and um, so you had to sell a certain amount, and you're kind of competing with the with the sales that you know the company did the year before, and they have to be better. And we'd had, and I started in the company when they'd had an amazing year last year, and like every like it was impossible to get sales like that. Um, okay and it was interesting like it was very it was kind of interesting like the girls that sold a lot got like a lot of returns come in Mm. like so like the girls like that were really good at like hard selling like a lot of people I guess kind of like thought better of it and brought the stuff back Um, I was terrible at selling because I just couldn't like fully believe that it was I don't know I couldn't fully believe in what I was selling I think I think I thought it was too expensive I think I thought it was kind of ridiculous Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had like, this manager that used to really that like watched me and noticed that instead of selling I was just like tidying the whole time and that none of the other girls were doing any tidying so she was like Sarah's, oh. Sarah's target is smaller because none of the rest of you help her tidy up so oh it was very that was a very positive thing because it was like the kind of people that appreciate like the those that clean up as opposed to just like those that like sell the hardest you know so it wasn't like particularly a negative experience, but it was very interesting in terms of it was very interesting. And like, yeah, we were all under pressure to sell. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, that's what I assume. It's just so fascinating to think about like human relationships and the the kind of interaction between colleagues and those kinds of environments. Um, and in a way, what has to be sacrificed for that narrative of competition to mm-hmm. To, to prevail you know and th- that's what we kind of see in this movie like there's there's so much dehumanizing stuff in it like with the Jack Lemmon character especially like he is reduced to begging constantly for leads I mean he really has like nothing to work with and mm-hmm. he's he just he's just begging for a little bit of support from his manager played by Kevin Spacey the whole time I was watching it I was like shouting at the, at the TV going like he's too old he should be retired like there was just this whole human 
aspect to him that just really upset me. Like I was really concerned in a neoliberal society. Also, the fact that they're they're selling property and real estate. Um, housing is no longer just perceived as like a means of survival, i.e. shelter. It's also now treated as an income stream due to the inflated property prices. And so that market has become really rife for exploitation and like it's very competitive and there's people who speculate on the housing market. And even then adding that dimension into it as well just seems so corrupt. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I think it's such an interesting film in that it sort of like shows like how kind of fragile privilege is if it's bestowed upon you by like someone in, in control. I suppose because I guess like you know with everything that's been happening in the world in the last couple of weeks and everyone's you know been like thinking a lot about themselves and how much you know privilege they have over certain other people and you can really like see that in this film that like as soon as someone does well like they're sort of on they're kind of they like lose um they sort of lose their consciousness about the system being unfair. Wow. Yes. You know, like, it, like as soon as they're sort of, as soon as like Jack Lemon, who, you know, is like desperately, desperately like the underdog for the first half of the film, as soon as he makes this big sale the next morning, you know, he's like, he's sort of like, he's just like boasting about it and going on about it. And it, it, he can't like, he can't even seem to remember be like being in this terrible situation the night before and it's kind of it's kind of interesting it made me think a lot about um you know the idea that like privilege or like success is like so fragile because it's been sort of like decided by this like invisible force like like the invisible bosses that you know you never see what are they called mitch and something yeah um and yeah, I'm not really quite, I like, it's sort of like quite an ephemeral idea that I haven't like quite got to grips with, but it was, it was interesting that like, as soon, yeah, that as soon as any of them, the ones that, as soon as any of them do well, like then they seem to be like less conscious about the, on the unfairness of the hellscape and wow. like, and they kind of lose, they kind of lose their grip on that. It's like, you can't, and I don't know why that is, why it's so like it takes it's so much mm. harder to see it's so much harder to kind of remember that none of it's fair when you're the one that's doing okay I suppose that is in a way um that makes me think of like the in, intermittent reinforcement uh you know system that they have in casinos where with the slot machines especially like they're programmed to let the player win like one like let's say I'm just picking and figure out if out of thin air but like once out of 10 tries and then that's the thing that motivates them to continue competing because they feel like oh they got one win so they're likely to get another but mm -hmm. realistically the house always wins like the system is always corrupt and it's only a very very few at the very top of the pyramid who are the, profiting the most the rest of the people are just like fending for themselves and like kind of seduced into thinking that if they have one good let's say success as you say um that that's proof that they're likely to have another but really it's rigged against them yeah yeah like I just that want is, to go into that film yeah. and unionize them like that yes. when I was watching it I was like why don't you all just quit like you can you know 
you can all like they're, they're not having anyone selling any land then you know the power's in your hands exactly but, oh my god that's so funny you, you said that because Paul was like watching it last night with me like the first half and he that's exactly what he said he's like they should just all like unionize yeah it is so true their their value is only determined by like a very very small margin they, they are not secure in their job and to me that creates like such a state of psychological chaos in people like to, to to where do you find the motivation if you go into work and it what you're staring at is an abyss it's a void like you you, you don't know your role in there you don't even know if you'll be, you can be back tomorrow you're constantly living on the edge you're constantly in a state of like volatility and that is such a hellscape to me like you, there's no there's no potential for developing in that role, contributing in a meaningful way. And it just, it really struck me how so much, so many sectors in modern, in the, in the modern workplace somehow aspire (laughs) to be like that. And I really hope we see a change because it's just, it just creates so much inequality and so much, such a psychological sense of like, uh, subordination in people like wanting to impress their authority figures and to me that's so unhealthy that doesn't produce good work mm-hmm. yeah it's know. um like what do you think of the Al Pacino character in, ah. in that film because like he's such an interesting character because, tell me what you think well I mean it took you it took me so long to understand that he does the same job as them yeah because he's doing it in this like purely like he basically sells himself instead of selling the land like he like makes friends with someone like shy and like self-doubting and just like spins like philosophical like you know yarns until like he's on enough of like an intimate footing with them to get them to believe that what they want is to like feel big by investing in land or like by buying land and and so it wasn't until like the next morning in the film that they kind of that I realized that he worked there and that he's doing the same job. And it's just I like I just have all these kind of like obscure thoughts about like what it is that actually makes you happy at work and yeah. like whether feeling important like really does or or just like it's so kind of fragile because he seems like the most important and the most secure. And then the second this guy comes back and is like, look, it was all it was all a pretense and I need my check back. Like that he's I don't know, that he's sort yeah. of just like he's just kind of nothing. Like that all of that like all of that speech and all of that talking, all of those ideas and those philosophies are just they don't mean anything. And I think that's the thing, like you just like I guess that's the thing about like being superior or being important or being successful. Like it's maybe not worth it because it's really because it's not real for anyone. Exactly. So like you shouldn't like why would you aspire to be like above someone else or to be or to have more than someone else? Because like you know, when I'm looking at people recently who are so terrified of having the things they've got taken away from them because they have to share it with other people. It's like if it's so if it's so scary like if it's so fragile that it scares you this much then it probably wasn't worth having anyway exactly I guess yeah so I don't know he's but yeah he was an interesting character because 
it was all just kind of smoke. It was all smoke and mirrors. Like, as you say, there was not ultimately much, like, substance to him. It was just a lot of persona, like a lot, just an inflated persona at work um, that got him, like, a moderate level of success, let's say. Or at least that's how he perceived it. And But ultimately, he couldn't escape the kind of crushing weight of how corrupt this workplace really was like nothing can really like save him from that mm-hmm. um and yeah I suppose it's like a I, I like what you said about how it's actually like kind of almost uh, a cautionary tale about placing or like wanting those things as goals like competing for that kind of like let's say even social status of what work brings us actually none of those things really matter like in in the grand scheme of things and I feel like the lockdown is a really good time or period of time that maybe brings that into like focus for a lot of people Um, because look at the way we've been living for the last few months like people who previously might have just been neglected and taken for granted are now called essential workers mm-hmm. and they're, and they're still not being paid like a living wage. There's still probably a lot of them working zero hours contracts. A global pandemic is really a thing that makes everyone stop in their tracks and like reconsider and hopefully re-examine a lot of things and maybe hopefully a lot of us collectively will start to rethink how we work and what we're really competing for. And then the other thing I've seen people compete for is like emotional gifts, like, you know, like praise or like favoritism and things that like are totally worthless. Like, you know, like, but like I've definitely been like manipulated by those things. And like, it's like such an incredible, like, I think it's really like not, it's not talked about the way that like the way that managers and like business owners can use these kind of like emotional, emotionally manipulative tools to make you yeah. feel the idea of just being liked can like be such a motivator, but you're competing for like this impossible thing of an emotional relationship with someone you shouldn't even be having an emotional relationship with. It's, um, yeah. Wow. It's, it's weird, but it's uh, I think it's something that a lot of people know how to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like even in the course of this film, like in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, we even see a, like a physical manifestation of the kind of structuring or like, let's say, phallic agency of the competitive discourse, literally in the form of like these brass balls that mm-hmm. like the Alan Baldwin character holds and the structuring agency of their narrative you know this very kind of masculine attribute of like being very very competitive and pushing you know viewing all of your colleagues as adversaries that you're in competition with constantly that really is a formula to not ever have solidarity in the workplace when you view other people constantly as a threat to what you're supposed to be achieving mm-hmm. yeah i feel like we'll never evolve as a species if we continue to to view colleagues like that there's also like a moment, the moment that I find the most upsetting in the film is when Jack Lemmon goes to get a cup of coffee during Alec Baldwin's like briefing 
and he's like what are you doing coffees for closers or something it's so kind of like dehumanizing and embarrassing I don't know for this like old guy who like yeah. is just having a respect to like not be able to have coffee like it's like yeah it's like infantilizing and and strange and it's like a really kind of it's a really upsetting moment yeah it is absolutely like I agree I, I find that very upsetting as well this was released in 1992 I feel like we haven't really advanced that much Sometimes I, I kind of read new economists and they have this vision of the future of work that we have like the technology now that could really liberate so many of us and we can get away from this kind of like bullshit jobs, you know, to kind of uh, a reference to David Graeber's uh, terminology about jobs that really we don't really even need to be doing. We can mm-hmm. we have the capacity now as a society to advance in a direction where we have more leisure time. We don't have to constantly be working to survive. And it kind of saddens me that we haven't come a long way from this film 30 years on. Like we're a lot of us still have to compete in that way, in a very like rudimentary, in a very debased way that dehumanizes our colleagues and ourselves. I'm sorry, I just like had like a daydream about all of the ways that you could like um, automate um, renting houses. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like you just like book your appointment online and then you could just go and like use your little, I don't know, like your like barcode to like open the door, go and have a look <laughs> and then like pay your deposit online and then you would just be able to do it without anyone selling to you. It would be so, so like peaceful and calm if you could just do all of your allocating of living spaces online and everything's priced according to like a standard basically you can afford what you can afford and you don't have to pay for other people's speculation wow yes nationalized and rent controlled nationalized and rent controlled and all online and all (laughs) online i love it make it happen happen. (laughs) yeah it'll be really nice i'm gonna build the app Well, Well, should we move on to Crime d'Amour? Yes, Mm -hmm. let's do it. Okay. Um, What year is Crime d'Amour? 2010. 2010, yeah. Okay, all right, I'm going to synopsize. Okay. Um, So Isabel is a young, ambitious, talented executive. We never quite know what her job title is. Um, (laughs) Working in the Paris office of a marketing company, where I thought was a marketing company. Um, At first, she has a good collaborative relationship with her boss, Christine, but when she presents Isabel's work as her own to win a promotion to the New York office, Isabel becomes competitive with her, eventually ruining her chances of promotion. Christine begins to bully Isabel, who visibly disintegrates until Christine is finally murdered, apparently, by Isabel. Okay, perfect. It's very difficult to synopsize this film. There's a lot of fun points. Yeah. Yeah, a lot happens. Was this your first time watching it? This is my first time watching it. I've seen Passion, which is the remake uh, by Brian De Palma, a few times, and I love it. Um, okay. I think it's ridiculous, but I totally love it. Like, I think everyone in it is so good. I think I just, I love, it's like really camp, really over the top. Kind of like, it's like Showgirls. Um, yeah. Like, it's like executive Showgirls. It's like amazing. <laughs> um, but this is like a much oh more kind of, this is like a much more kind of subtle like subtle take on it but it's still it's still very far-fetched the whole like, yeah. like, like murder plot is is like kind of amazing um, yeah it's kind of bonkers 
But yeah, it definitely yeah. shows, I think a little bit more that like the opposite of that kind of, the opposite of that kind of like dehumanizing competition, like competition that's more of the attempt to kind of like stop or quell competition, but through kind of like emotional strategies as opposed to like financial. Like, yeah, I suppose, yeah, like you're kind of, rather than threatening someone's um, sort of ability to survive, you're threatening someone's ability to survive in a totally different way. Exactly, exactly. It's more like threatening um, like a social death yes. in a way um, that then like com- completely stripping the person away, you know, from their means of survival. Like that Isabel still can have her job, but she's like seen as a pariah where mm-hmm. she works because of what Christine does. Um, yeah, like I, I, when I first watched this film, I thought, it's a very good example of how there's such an ambivalent atmosphere in this workplace of success, you know, like the idea that you're motivated to do really well, but there's there's like this imaginary line that you cannot go beyond because if you push past like your, let's say your manager or your, the person who's superior to you in the rankings, then you've now created an enemy for yourself Mm -hmm. and you know you got a target on your back so it just feels so ambivalent like there's such a paradox you never quite know how far you can go and really you can never test your abilities um to to their natural extent or like self-actualize because if you go too far you're a threat you have to stay within a certain parameter of success you can't go beyond the person who oversees your work for example and so in that regard it's kind of like I can't help but think of like the neoliberal like discourse in this film as being like very infanticidal oh <laughs> like, interesting like, yeah like the you know it's like the, it's like it's like Kronos you know eating his young like mm-hmm. you, you cannot surpass your your parents like it's a very it's like becomes this kind of like tyrannical um, mother figure in the workplace that threatens to kill like they made you but they can also kill you yeah so it just kind of brings me around to that idea again of the things like why we sort of find status and superiority like so so incredibly important like the things and like the amount of time we spend at work it's it really means that you know if you can be at your attacked at work you're attacked in life because you know it's like your whole personhood and it shouldn't be and it doesn't make sense but like there's something kind of innate with when you're having these human relationships they do work like familial relationships like you said like it's like there's this parent there's this child there's this struggle which it shouldn't be I once watched someone bully someone at work by they implying that they were useless at their job and then like in front of them and in front of a lot of people asking their intern to do things instead being like you know like yeah you know, a bit so she would be like she would say the name of the person she'd be like actually don't worry you you do this like and it was really it was so nasty and so but it was also like why in like in a sort of philosophical way like why should it matter why this sort of attacking someone's like seniority and superiority matter so much like why does it hurt so much but I could I watched it and I was like that's so wrong that's so hurtful but I couldn't quite like, you know, if I have to explain why exactly it is, I can't, I can't explain it. I know. It's almost like a primordial fear. 
like it's you're right like it's you a lot of us will probably struggle with trying to articulate why that hurts Mm -hmm. yeah I suppose like that's that's the kind of unspoken threat that that hovers over Isabel that really motive that's what really motivates her like that is what she's competing to like ensure it never happens to her like she maintains like her autonomy like even the fact that like we see in very very early on in the film like we see like Christine initially being very friendly to Isabel like being very chummy you know she invites her over like they're they work together but they always do there's still always like that kind of boundary in their relationship which translates in the French like the vous voyez you know they never they have they maintain their professionalism and the way they address each other there's they never break that boundary and yet there's a lot of intimate moments like where we we see Christine like kissing her on the neck like kissing Isabel on the neck very early on and she gives her this scarf that becomes like an object of identification where initially Isabel she really wants to emulate Christine and she says she even loves her mm. And she wears the scarf proudly, like as a badge of honor, like as if like um, Isabel says, I've been accepted into Christine's world. They share the same values. They share the same qualities. And when we start to see like Christine co-opting the work, you know, this sort of chips away and the cracks start to show in the relationship that the, the scene where Isabel has been set up to have like. A vulnerable moment in the workplace and it's all captured on the CCTV cameras it kind of it made me stop and think like why is that humiliating why is it such a, a such an unbearable spectacle for Isabel for her vulnerability to be exposed you know it's not like she was shown like committing murder but it may have it may what you know may well have been you know what I mean like what what is it about the human aspect, the human dimension of her being upset and crying and not being fully like pulled together. Why is that the social death? It, it really mm. made me think, you know? Yeah, it is. It is so interesting. Like what happens between these two, because in a sense, like what Isabel does to Christine is, is kind of just as bad. Like, you know, she, you know, she kind of, she does the exact same thing. She like, you know, she does this, like she gets herself into the situation where she's like done this project, which she can take like total credit for. And in the process, she makes it look like Christine isn't doing her job. Yeah. So she does like exactly the same, like it's exactly the same erasure. It's like, mm. she's just as bad, I think, in that, in that, oh, yeah. like she, you know, she ruins like, she ruins her chances of going to New York, which she really wants to do. And she, it's not like, it's not like she's, you know, what Christine's done to Isabel is say like, this was my idea. I did it by myself. What Isabel does to Christine is the same thing. It and is. like, you know, you have to assume they're both like executives, whatever that means. Like they both must do like, they both must kind of do an equal amount of work, but there's just, they cannot like, there somehow can't be room for both of them in this place and they're also I think like they're mainly surrounded by men aren't they like they seem yes. to be, there's not a lot of like other female executives so maybe that's like kind of part of it that there just can't be two women like there's like you know there's not enough like diversity to for them to both do well um mm. but then there is also like the idea that I think part that this implicit idea that Isabel like is partly punishing Christine for like the intimacy for like you know mm. for like 
there's something about like Christine's intimacy that seems like like a like an assault like you know like mm. kissing her giving her you know giving her a scarf like talking to her like telling her personal secrets and like there's like kind of like what is that that's so like that sometimes you can get really angry with someone for like for like imposing intimacy on you when you don't want it and it can be oh. like it can be a weapon of like someone I've definitely had that like someone kind of imposing like an intimate relationship on me which is like which is too much for me to handle mm-hmm. um and that's like and it made me like really angry and really like it made me feel like really invaded mm-hmm. and I don't know it's kind of there is like there's so much sort of unspoken Freudian stuff going on between them because actually what's going on is like yeah like you said like when you know she's just being shown like being upset and ramming her car like it shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be so awful but yeah like, but it is like no, like nothing that happens between these women should these women should really be happening like it's all kind of it's all something else in a way like it's all yeah there's another there's there's a whole narrative that is kind of just bubbling up beneath the surface that's never addressed between them and I feel like it also might have something to do with Isabel's like sister as well like the this this whole other way of of living life like just Mm -hmm. a kind of like simple life with a family life like a very wholesome life and I can't help but wonder whether like because there's so much in Isabel that I feel like she really dissociates a lot. Like mm-hmm. when she's shown running on the treadmill and she just like zones out and she's in this kind of like, I don't know, like very, just very, very ambitious, very driven, uh, very energetic mode. And I wonder whether she's just longing to kind of persist that state of mind that mentality constantly throughout her life but it's impossible like it's just it's unsustainable but she's she's very she's a very very driven character I agree with you to the extent that she's very similar to Christine because she said something when she visited her sister it's it kind of like was implied that the sister is living in the family home like where Chris where Isabel grew up and then she said something about like the the her niece that being in her room it's, like, it's as if like she's there's this whole other life that could have included her, but that she's absent from, like she's sort of like vanished from. And now she's solely occupying this very warrior like existence where there's absolutely no nurturing, no comfort. Like she's she's very, very she's also very clean. Like everything is is very, very ordered. Um <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 hard for me to articulate it, but it's as if like there's really a human dimension missing. Mm-hmm. She's like an and automaton. I, and I suppose maybe that's like another way in that she's in which she's similar to Christine, because Christine also like you know like that's sort of implied that she's like quite promiscuous and she like has a lot of like different lovers and she lives alone just like Isabel does. So maybe that like maybe it is like that like rejection of that association that like makes Isabel so murderous um (laughs) you know like that she that you know she doesn't actually want to be like Christine who's like maybe lonely 
she wants to be like her sister who's like safe and warm and cocooned in like the family home so you know like maybe like it's Christine's like big crime is actually a love crime like you know like it's actually that she gave her the you know the big crime that um Christine commits is by giving her the scarf and by like by sort of like making herself like interchangeable with her in terms of taking credit for her ideas it's like it's the closeness that has to be punished as opposed to the kind of as opposed to the betrayal and like you know the other thing is that there's this like man like male character who's like a lover of both Christine and Isabel and Isabel is so upset that Christine kind of like forbids him to see her and like takes him back for herself but it's like he's Christine's lover first it doesn't make sense that she would be so upset like it's not yeah he, yeah he was he, he so that's the other thing it's like they like their lives overlap so much that they even have the same lover and it's something that Isabel's taking so personally but it's it's like it's not wasn't yours to begin with it's like Isabel can't exist because Christine does wow mm. oh my god that is so true. I agree. And it actually, it makes sense from a psychoanalytic point of view, if we talk about like the eroticization of, um, of the individual, like what animates them, you know, what really kind of like puts them into action. And I feel like she's eroticized, you know, Isabel has eroticized Christine um, to the point that she, she is longing for such a closeness. It's like she's completely invested all of her goals and fantasies onto Christine to the point that she's even like, as you say, like co-opted the same lover. But even when she's with Philippe, this guy, um, when they're together, Isabel often just asks about Christine. Mm -hmm. Like she, she wonders about Christine. Like Christine is very much a part of that, affair in in her mind like she she really identify she's really over identified um to the point that christine eroticizes her in term of in terms of her desire being so much like um pervaded by the representation of what christine is um I also sometimes watch the film thinking like, is it, is is all of this just like like a very misogynistic, like uh, cautionary tale about what happens to women if they want too much at work? Like they all just become these crazed, you know, like murderous or like psychopathic creatures. But actually, like if it had just been men competing with each other and like backstabbing each other and have been like backbiting at work and all this stuff it probably wouldn't have made for such riveting I don't know yeah I mean I think you're totally right about like the erotic um the erotic sort of relationship between them and that Christine is the kind of spark that ignites not only Isabel but like the entire film because as soon as Christine is killed off the film's not that interesting anymore like it doesn't and like I think that's a little bit deliberate because I was sort of like what does this mean this whole like double bluff of the murder and you see her committing the murder and she seems to like implicate herself in it and she goes to prison and then and then she's like sort of like left evidence implying that someone else someone else framed her and it's all this like very convoluted thing and it's like I think maybe it's kind of deliberate that like it's it kind of it's lackluster and it's a little bit meaningless because you know and it's just like Isabel's like attempt to kind of like play with herself now that she hasn't got anyone else to play with like yeah it's and like 
it is it's so interesting and it's so you're right like I think I thought that this whole conversation would be like this very straightforward conversation about like competing uh, you know but it's it's not like neither of these films are like very straightforward because like the worst thing that happens to Isabel is that she gets rid of her competition and like that's actually yeah like it's actually kind of it's like a terrible thing for her because you know she's just kind of like she yeah she's not enlivened at all she's like more like an automaton than ever by the end of the film and she's like just as trapped oh my god Sarah that is so true what about you what do you 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 said like in the beginning that you thought felt very differently about competition after watching these films than you did when we were kind of planning this episode yeah but I couldn't quite articulate why and I think you've just like you've really like deciphered it for me and what you've just said like it's as if you know competing with someone and like coveting what they have and constantly trying to like one-up each other is sometimes framed as this like tenuous awful thing like this like the, the drudgery of it and like there's always the chance that you might fail if you're competing but then actually the worst thing that happens is if your competition is eliminated and you're left to confront yourself you don't have the other to invest all of your like you know your your erotic Uh, fantasies that animate you and enliven you and that put you into motion you're like suddenly stuck you know there's no place to like move forward Mm -hmm. and it brings me a little bit to what makes me think of um, what Zizek said as well like desire is uh, only activated when you don't have what you want as soon as you get what you want it's the worst thing that can happen to you because you're always like prompted into action to try and get your goal, achieve your goal. And in a way that is what happens to to Isabel, like the whole ambiance of the film changes radically and we, we kind of get stuck. We're just in this kind of limbo state of just going through the motions of this, frankly quite like irritating crime mm-hmm. <laughs> like that she's like she's set out and she, it's all it's all just like some overly complicated confession and then like retraction of the confession and it's all just and it it, it plays out like so it's it's so unrealistic like the way that she's finally released from prison and she's like acquitted from the murder because she's managed to like con- su- successfully frame Philippe and then she goes on to, you know, carry out these accounts and like impress her her uh, her colleagues. And she at one point, like everyone like applauds her, and and a guy in the meeting says like, Isabel, you're the perfect woman. Like, yes, <laughs> I that was so. It was like in that bit in Gone Girl when he's like, and you have a like a beautiful vagina, and it's like that's like how is like how is that like normal dialogue like that must be like some kind of like fan like narcissistic fantasy dialogue is so weird but it also like it really does feed back into the idea of like there can only be one woman in like and it has to be like you know you you it has to be like a perfect one because there's only room for one so you have to do everything like yeah yeah you're right like the two the two female colleagues have to battle it out and compete and one has to like one has to falter because as you say like there can only there's only room for one mm-hmm. um we can't you know we can we can possibly have more than one like f- feminine perspective or subjectivity in the workplace like 
Yeah, it all th- that whole end sequence in 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 Love Crime really plays out like a narcissistic like fan fiction. Like it's just it's just insane. Like mm-hmm. who talks like that? Like and yeah, I suppose a lot of it just really f- plays out as if like maybe Isabel just had been in prison and like that's where the movie really ended and the whole last sequence was just her like daydream of Mm -hmm. what she wished could have happened like how she could have planned it better and she would have been acquitted like I like to think of it as Isabel is still actually in jail but she's just like in this black mirror of like fantasizing and she's like she's downloaded her subjectivity into her fantasy (laughs) where she's just living out as the perfect like executive which is fucking sad (laughs) I suppose like yeah I suppose both of these films in a way they're like they're not warnings about being ambitious they're warnings about like what happens if you try and battle it out at the command of like a misogynistic patriarchal like structure basically like you know all of the men in Glengarry Glen Ross like refuse to like have their balls mentioned in a like in a pep talk and like go on strike and protest the sort of like you know like disgusting like treatment of you know their their disgusting treatment and the sort of like imprisonment of their like manhood um and all yeah. of the women in cream d'amour should like set up their own like agency because they clearly work really well together like i suppose that's the thing it's like about the kind of it's about what happens to you if you like if you kind of give in to those threats I suppose oh yeah but rather than like it's nothing because like actually I suppose maybe that's what that's it like you the people you see as your competition that's it the people you see as your competition they're not like they're just like the other victims of like of the people in charge so, oh my god, Sarah, that's so, so good. That's what it is. Like that, you know, there's no point there's no point in competing with each other. Even like the people that have like you know, like bullied you are like misguided because like what they should have been doing was turning all of their like rage and insecurity on the whole like structure of the institution itself. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like if you perceive someone as I guess what I'm learning here is that in in terms of competition, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. People can still come together and collaborate. Um, I guess the aspect of competition that also interests me is that there's a certain level of identification. Mm. We only see, the, the other person is only a competitor and an adversary because we see an aspect of ourselves in them. Like we see ourselves reflected. And I guess the pathological thing is if we want to like crush the other, because really we're crushing ourselves, we would advance far more if we just banded together and found an innovative way to like, to collaborate. I love that. Mm. Yeah. And I guess like actually really both films are about misogyny and it's like actually quite interesting to see a group of men who are victims of misogyny because they're accused of not being men. Like, because they're not like, because they're not, good enough at their jobs like or because they're not good enough at like this totally impossible kafka-esque um task <laughs> or sisyphe and like task it's like but yeah like i think like there's there's misogyny in both of these films and it's like interesting to have a demonstration of how men can suffer from it too wow that is so true you're absolutely right like they're constantly under the threat of being emasculated if they don't close mm. you don't close these ridiculously impossible accounts like this bullshit work and yeah, you're right. Like the 
the accusation of being like a non-male just pervades the entire film and that's ridiculous <laughs> oh. oh my god I love that I love that we've you've actually like managed to see how these two films link and they now that you've identified that I, I can see how they work really well together that's actually that was like a really tough therapy session like we got there in the end but it took us like so long to understand like because yeah I was very perplexed about these films and like and I think you are as well and it was it took a long time to like understand what they were telling me and now like I don't know I sort of do understand it a little bit more me too me too thanks to you Sarah because I was really at sea at when like but you're right. Like, I really like how we've uh, worked our way through them. It feels quite, quite cathartic. Yeah, definitely. I guess I'm just like edit away at the beginning of our conversation. And like, I, will. Make this <laughs> um, I have to remember that we got a donation this week, which was very, very nice. Um, That's so exciting. It's so nice, especially as like I, you know, people have a million things to donate to at the minute. And uh, like that are uh, incredibly important. Um, so we really, really do appreciate you thinking of us. Um, that's so kind. Someone called Jacqueline Wheel. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you yeah. so much, Jacqueline. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. We really, really appreciate your donation. Yeah, we're so thankful. And we're, we also love getting the nice comments on Twitter. So thank you for sharing your feedback. It means a lot that you're listening. And, uh, and also hello and welcome to our new subscribers too. Hi. <laughs> I want to hear from our Spotify subscribers because we have so many but like they're totally silent and all social media platforms oh, so if you're listening on Spotify please tell me because I don't you know I've never met a single one of you yeah please we love hearing from you we love hearing your suggestions and I, I've had a couple of like people DM me about like film suggestions and maybe Sarah we could even run like a Twitter poll for our next series like come up with some some topics what do you that's think that's a good idea I like that I think we should definitely do that so if you want to have a say if you want to be heard then please follow us on Twitter yeah follow us on Twitter at projections pod and um yeah have a good have a nice couple of weeks and we'll see you soon Bye. Bye.